Romans 8. We'll look at a couple verses here and we'll dive into things. So when I first started using my iPad preaching, I, um, did, I had it where, you know, the screen would lock up after a minute or two. So I remember the first time I preached with my iPad, I literally got talking, got carried away, and then my screen was off. So being Brian that I am, I, could, I literally should just stop talking and entered in my passcode. But I thought, I'm going to just keep preaching and enter in my passcode at the same time. First time I entered it in, I missed it, and so it said, do again. So I'm still preaching away, and I do it again, and the third time it locked me out for five minutes. And then for two years, I did not use an iPad again, because I'm like, this stupid thing, you know, but it was more the operator than the thing, but that's all right. And then there was one night on a Sunday night, and some of you might remember it, I was getting ready to preach, and I lost my sermon notes, because I had it on paper. I went back to paper. I just did that way, because paper, you can't lose, you, well, you can't, paper's not going to lock you out, right? But you can lose paper. And so after I lost it, I decided I'm going to use my iPad, and I learned, because being the tech-savvy guy that I am, you can make it so it doesn't lock, and so that's a good thing. And uh, be careful that you don't get any fingers chopped off of that thing right there. We might need to put a warning label on there. You know, you go into stores, warning, everything in California could cause cancer. You know, you see those signs at every store. You put a warning, could chop your finger off if you hit it too high there. Um, but, so I learned to unlock my iPad. So that's a good thing most of the time. So when I preach in things, the iPad's always open, good to go. Well, this afternoon, I went down and helped my parents with a few things. And I just put my iPad in my bag that I bring. And I left it open. So the only bad side of leaving it open is the whole battery drain. So I went to turn it on right before service here, and it was dead. So I don't have a portable charger or anything, but my laptop will charge it. So my laptop's sitting here charging my iPad as we get into the message tonight. So if you see cords up here, don't worry about it. It's all good. Romans chapter number 8 tonight. Romans 8, we're going to dive right in. I want you to look with me in verse 28. You say, I thought we are talking about salvation tonight. We are. And we'll get there in just a moment. I want you to see Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Look at verse number 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, we look back at these verses here, and sometimes I don't think people will go to these verses and talk about the doctrine of salvation, but it lays it out right for us right here in verse number 29. And we're going to look at that tonight, and so we're going to go through, if you notice, you have a lot of notes here. You say, how long is it going to take to get through all these notes? I don't know. This is my first time going through it with you. In a college classroom, it took me four weeks of three hours per week, 12 hours, to get through the doctrine of salvation. We're not going to be here 12 hours tonight, okay? We're going to try and get through this tonight and see where we get, or if we don't get through it, we will continue on later on. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then let's dive in tonight and see what we can get. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are. Thank you for loving us, and thank you for being our God. Bless our time in your word. I pray that as we look at the doctrine of salvation tonight, that you'd work in our lives and in our hearts and help us. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Number one, as we dive in tonight, we see God's sovereignty in salvation. 
God's sovereignty and salvation. As we think about God's sovereignty, and what does the word sovereign mean? Absolute. Absolute power, absolute authority. You can take that in lots of different ways. Does the Bible ever use the word sovereign? No, but it's implicated and implied all throughout Scripture. Now, when we talk about God's sovereignty and salvation, what we see before our very eyes, we see, look at this passage again. Verse number 29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Do you see the progression of salvation before our eyes? Do you see whom he foreknew? He also predestinated. Whom he predestinated, he called. Who he called, he justified. And whom he justifies, he glorifies. Now, who's the he in that passage? It's God. You see that there? It's not us. So do you see right away that the work of salvation is a work of God? Am I wrong in stating that tonight? No, the Bible tells us in a great verse for us to memorize. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is not about us. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So when we look at this, and as we dive into these thoughts, I want you to see God did the work. You see right there. He's the one who foreknew. We'll explain that a little bit more in case you're a Calvinist in the room. I'll help you here in just a minute. He also, those who he foreknew, he predestinated. He also called them. He justifies them. And he glorifies them. Do you see how the Lord does all those things? And if you notice, if you're looking at this passage in Romans 8, you notice the last two verses of this passage. That I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because you see, since he did all these things, you can't lose your salvation. And we get to, we'll talk more about that here in just a little bit tonight. As we continue on, we see tonight, number one, we see God's sovereignty and salvation. We see letter A, we see the depravity of man. The depravity of man. The Bible makes that clear. And as we think on these things, it's, it's very interesting to me. A Baptist does not want to be Calvinistic in their thinking. And a Calvinist doesn't want to be like a Baptist. I remember when I first, when I first became pastor here, I knocked on someone's door and they're like, all right, pastor of the Baptist church, I have a question for you. I'm like, sure, let's go. He said, are you Arminian or are you Calvinistic? Arminian, what? Calva, what? Um, I'm a Baptist. I, that's not why I asked you. Are you Arminian or are you Calvinistic? And I'll be honest with you, and I'll be, tell you what I told him. Do you know a smart thing I learned? I learned it a few years before that. Don't think, don't say that you know something when you don't know something, because then you just look like a fool. It is much wiser to just say, I don't know. After that day, I could tell the difference between the two. And there are a lot of differences between the two. And so if someone were to ask me today, are you an Arminian or are you Calvinistic? I would say, I'm a Biblicist. I go with the Bible. 
There are parts to Calvinism that are true. There are a lot of parts that are not. Arminians, there are some good thoughts in there, but most of it is a bunch of garbage there and losing salvation and things, and we'll just leave that there. And if you have questions about Calvinism, last summer, I, was it last summer? That's crazy. It's been that long already. I did a whole message on that topic, and you can go back and you can listen to it and get some help there. You say, well, why wouldn't you just talk about it again? Because you should have listened a year ago and gotten it then. And I know you don't remember what I said last Sunday, so you can do the work and go back and listen to it and get it from there. So when we talk about the depravity of man, we got to look at Romans 3, verse 10 through 12. The Bible says, as it is written, and you remember, we went through the book of Romans not that long ago, too. And I love being able to go back after going through a book, and maybe it didn't do good for you, but it did really good for me. So I can put a lot of this into perspective. You see, Paul said at the beginning of Romans, he's not ashamed of the gospel, and then he's going to give the gospel. But he starts out by talking about those who decide, who, those who reject God, eventually God's going to reject them. That's chapter 1. And then chapter number 2, and just because you're a Jew doesn't mean that God's going to accept you. You still got to come to, you're still wicked where you are. And chapter then to 2 and to 3 talks about, I don't care how religious you are. At the end of the day, and Paul lays it all out, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is, now, this is not a Baptist preacher, you know, because I could say everyone's doing, and not everybody, you know, sometimes embellishment happens. This is inspired scripture. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Could it be any more clear than this? As we look at man and as we look at these things tonight, we see, first of all, number one, that there is none righteous. The Bible clearly states that. There is none that are righteous. Anybody want to argue with me on that one? Number two, there's none that understandeth. None. None. Number three, none seeketh after God. You hear people say, I found God. No, 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 no. You did not find God. You and I did not find God. He found you. He sought you. And we'll look at more verses on this thought a little bit later. But you did not find God. Number four. All are gone out of the way. I, as we look at these things, all have gone out of the way. We've all turned aside. Doing our own thing. Number five. We've become unprofitable, the Bible says. Do you know what being unprofitable is, really? It's being useless. And number six, none, none that doeth good. None do good. So I don't know how it could be any more clear right here. Do you see these things here? There's none righteous, none who understand, none who seek after God. All have turned aside, all are useless, and none do good. That's what the Bible says. That is the depravity of man. Now, we don't like to use the word depravity because it, the tulip for Calvinism, total depravity. But if we're being honest, 
we are incapable of getting to God by ourselves. It is a true statement. And I've heard many a Baptist try to argue the total depravity, but you can't argue it. A dead man cannot do anything. A dead man is dead. When we talk about this and we look here tonight and we look at the depravity of man, we also see the fallen nature, letter B, of unsaved men. What does the Bible tell us? When we look at the fallen nature, you've got to understand, that's not how it was started. When God created Adam, it was good. Adam was made in the image of God. Adam and Eve were perfect. They were not fallen. They were perfect. When they sinned, things changed. And because of that, this is what the Bible tells us. Number one, we see that we're alienated from God. Colossians 1, verse number 21 and 22 says, And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now have he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So you see, they're alienated and the enemy of God. That's why we sing that song, Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. You know, we listen to politicians, we listen to pastors that don't know what they're talking about, and you'll hear them say, we're all children of God. That's false. We're children of wrath. We're God's enemy before salvation. The fallen nature changed all of that. And so we're not all children of God. Once you're born again, you're adopted into his family. But that's something that you don't hear a lot of people talk about. But that's Bible. That's what it says. So we see that we are alienated from God. Number two, we see that we're spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. That's where when we talk about the depravity of man, we are unable to get to God on our own. We are dead. Get a dead thing to do something. You can't. Dead things don't do things. Anybody want to argue that? I don't think you really can. The Bible tells us in Romans, Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 5, And you hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our... So we talk about none righteous, and we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature, we're by nature, the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, even when we were dead in sins, hath made, quickened us, made us alive together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. Now, I should have put it up there. Go to Ephesians 2 real quick, and I'm going to just blow your mind a little bit right here. Ephesians 2. Well, some of you, it might not be that way. So we just read verse 5. Even when we are dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together, and made, already done, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's already been done. He's made us. 
say, but I'm here, I'm not seated in heavenly places. He's already done it all. He took care of it all. But do you see once again, the Bible shows us how we did nothing. Am I right on that statement? But God, who is rich in mercy, he loved us. When we were dead in sins, he made us alive. He set us in heavenly places. He's done all these things. That's why we know that later on, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We also see number three as we talk about the fallen nature of men. We see we're helpless to save ourselves. The Bible says in Romans 5, verse number 6, For when we were without strength, when we couldn't help ourselves, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. We could not fix the problem. We could not do it on our own. And so as we look at this, and we think on these things, and we, just, we see the fact that we are not righteous, we don't seek after God, there's nothing good about us, we're unprofitable, and then we see the fact that we are alienated enemies of God, we're spiritually dead, we are unable to help ourselves get anywhere. The next thing that we see, letter C, we see God's sovereign plan of salvation. Now sometimes when we say God's sovereign plan, there are those who kind of have a problem with all of that there. And you don't need to have a problem, it's all going to be okay. We read already, and I'm going to read the verse again, out of, uh, so number one underneath letter C, we see the process of salvation. I jumped ahead of myself because I wanted you to see that there in Romans 8 as we got going tonight. But the process of salvation, Romans 8, 29 and 30, we read them already. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. We see the process begins, letter A, with who he foreknow, or foreknew. It should have been foreknew there. The foreknowledge of God. Now... People get caught up on this one. Well, then God picks and chooses who gets saved because God foreknew and he predestined. Well, you have to take the Bible and look at the Bible to get how to define how something happens. Now, I know you could take out your dictionary. You could take out commentaries from lots of different people. And you could get lots of different answers for God's foreknowledge. When we want to know what God's foreknowledge is all about, we have to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered abroad, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. God knows all things. God did not make Adam and Eve eat the fruit in the garden. He also didn't keep them from eating of the fruit in the garden. God gave man a free will. That free will has gotten a lot of us in a lot of trouble. 
going back to the very beginning. But man has free will. Man makes a choice. We'll talk about that here in just a little bit tonight. But when we look and we talk about elect according to the foreknowledge of God, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, what does that mean? That means that before you and I were ever born, you know, we talked about in the past, remember, we talked about the fact that, um, I was trying to think, who's that lady that just walked in? You're John Bunch's sister, I know that. And so, Marcy, that's it. I'm like, as you came in, I'm like, I know you, I know you. And then I saw your smile, I'm like, John Bunch's sister. And then Marcy, and so I'm glad you're here. Oh, I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much for coming tonight, and we're glad that you're here. And that's a good thing. And tell your brother, I'm still mad at him that he moved so far away. Why he had to do that and move. Yeah, he's on vacation right now. That guy moving far away and all of that. I could say a lot. I love John and Don. Great people. But I'm glad you're here tonight. And so the Bible told us, we looked at it on Sunday, that before the foundation of the world, it was foreordained that Jesus would die, the lamb would be slain, right? And so if God knows all things, do you know he knows who's going to accept him and who's not? That's all that his foreknowledge is about. Because it is a choice. Man makes a choice. We're going to look at that in a few minutes. When we talk about the foreknowledge, how are we chosen according to God's foreknowledge in the fact that God knows all things, and he knows who will receive him and who will reject him? At the end of the day, the only part we play in the salvation is we receive it or we reject it. That's it. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But when we talk about foreknowledge, that's where it begins. God can see all things. He knows the beginning. He knows the end. He knows everything in between. So God has chosen us according to the fact that he knows who's going to receive him and who's not. Step number one is foreknowledge. Step number two is predestinated. Predestinated. Now sometimes we get to words like predestined and people don't want, it's a big word. People have a hard time with that word. And uh, you look and you think about being predestined. And what does the Bible tell us? Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. What did he predestinate us to be? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's the work that God is doing in all of our lives each and every day. Because let's just get this straight right now. None of us are like Jesus tonight. Anybody want to claim you're like Jesus tonight? There's been lightning and thunder today. I don't know if I'd say that. And uh, you know God's after you if lightning gets you, okay? Just, you don't even need help with that one. If lightning gets you, or you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, whatever the case may be. But we talk about, where are we predestined? What are we, what's he, what's he making us into? The image of his son. That's what this life is all about, our growth. And there's so much more I could say there, but for sake of time, I'm not going to go further than that. But we see that he foreknew, he predestinated. What's the next thing? Number, letter C, he called. God called. In a few minutes, I'm going to go a little deeper there and show you some verses to back that up. No one can come to the Son except the Father beckon him, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? You are called by God. And I think God's call of salvation is for everyone. Am I wrong on that statement, or is God's call for everyone? I think his call is for everyone. The difference is some receive him, some reject him. 
And we don't choose that. And God doesn't make anyone receive him or reject him. It is a choice that people make. You know, at the end of the day, you know, some people say, well, Judas, he had no choice but to do. He had a choice. He did not. He could have gotten saved. And I'll tell you this, if he was a saved child of God, the devil would have never entered him. I don't think you could disagree with that statement. But as we look and we think on these things, he called, next letter D, he justified. Justification. I like the, I like the terminology people like to use, just as if I never sinned. I'm justified. Praise God for that. Sanctification, there's so much more I could say about those awesome words. Letter E, we see, then we're glorified. That is the process of salvation. That's how it works. And so as we look at that and we think about this, we say, well, as, let's look at the next point, number, um, number two underneath here. We see, God's, we see God's part in salvation. So we've already said here, what part did man play in salvation? We're not righteous. We cannot help ourselves. We are dead and literally we're alienated and enemies of God. We're spiritually dead and we cannot help ourselves. So now what part does God play in salvation? I'm so glad you asked so we can continue on. We see the part that God plays. Letter A, we see that God calls one to salvation. I mentioned a minute ago the process of salvation. I'm going to break it down a little bit further. God calls one to salvation. The Bible tells us in... Um, <clears throat> Let's see. Hold on a second. So we see in those verses that we read already tonight, we saw that God calls. We also see letter B, and let's continue on here, that God draws one to himself. God does this. How does God do this? John 6, verse 44. Look at what the Bible says. No man can come to me Except the Father which has sent me, draw him. And I'll raise him up at the last day. So you look at that verse right there. Can anyone go to God? The only way you can get to God is through Jesus Christ. But the only way you can get to Jesus Christ is by God drawing you. Does that make sense? That's what the Bible says. So... You remember the day you got saved in this room? There was conviction. There was this curiosity. There was something that sparked there. You're dead. You don't have any curiosity for spiritual things. You don't have any faith. How can you have faith when you're dead? You don't. That's why you got to understand the faith that you have is not your faith. It's his faith that's given to you. Grace and faith are both gifts from God. Not just grace, but faith also. There are many Christians and there are many Baptists that will say that no, is my faith. I put my faith. You are spiritually dead. You have no faith. You can't argue that. You could try, and there are a lot of people that like to argue things, but you can't really argue, but you have no faith. You're dead. Does a dead man have anything going for him? No, nothing. As we look here, we see that God calls one to salvation. God draws one to himself, letter C, or yeah, letter C, the Holy Spirit convicts one of sin. The Holy Spirit does. Now, remember this thought. 
the soul winner does not convict someone of sin. Oh, did you hear that? The soul winner doesn't convict someone of sin. The preacher doesn't convict someone of sin. The Holy Spirit convicts one of sin, and it's through the Word of God. But as we think on this, let us see, we look at the passage, John 16, verse number 8 and 9. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me. Now you got to understand something. So this is how it works. God draws us to himself. The Spirit of God convicts us that we need a Savior when we're dead. And that's God's grace. That's God's grace on display. But then we also see that it is God, that letter D, who grants repentance. It's God who forgives. So what do you mean by that? The Bible tells us, 2 Timothy 2.25, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God, preadventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So what does that tell us? It's God who knows the heart, right? So at the end of the day, it's God who knows who's saved and who's not, and he's the one who accepts it or not. The Bible tells us in um, Acts eleven eighteen, and when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. You see how it's God that does these things? Let's go a little bit further. Next point, letter E. God gives one the faith to believe. We're talking about God's part in salvation. There's a lot of stuff that God does, isn't there? Isn't there a lot that God does? It was pretty easy for us, wasn't it? Man, it cost Jesus his life for us. And look at all that God does for us. That's why no one could ever say that anyone's ever loved them like God loves you. So God gives one the faith to believe. As we look at this and we think on that, 2 Peter 1, verse number 1. It says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. The, precious, the like precious faith that we got, did it come through us? the righteousness of God. You see that right there? That's what the Bible tells us. Philippians 1, verse number 29. For unto you it is given on the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sakes. Do you see how it was given to us to believe on him? That's something that was given to us. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, and we've already looked at these, but look at it again. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The next time I hear a Baptist preacher say that the gift is grace and it's your faith, I'm going to just, no, I can't smack them because the Bible tells me I can't do that. I'll send one, I'll send, Ryan can do it for me or something like that. The pastor's not supposed to be a striker, but a school teacher, that's different, right? But um, we're saved by grace through faith and it's not of yourselves. So the faith that we are given is given to us by God. And then also we know the fact that it is God who justifies the believer. 
Not us and what we do, but God does. The Bible tells us in Romans 4, verse 25, and, 20, and chapter 5, verse number 1. And um, am I losing anybody? Is everyone doing all right? When we're talking about salvation, this should be, this is good stuff. You're never going to go wrong hearing the doctrines of the Word of God. I wish more churches would do this. And that more pastors would take the time to teach us stuff. So we look at Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification? Look at the next verse. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to the verse right before that. And see, this is one of those where, honestly, the guy, the people who put in the verses... They should have just kept 425 and 5-1 together. They belong together. And uh, don't. And I hear preachers go off and on, about, on and on about how the n- numerology, the numbers are not inspired, okay? They were added by somebody a lot later on. And if there are some coincidences with numbers, then fine. But the numbers are not inspired. Jesus was delivered for our offenses, and he was raised again so we could be justified. And because of that, chapter 5, verse number 1, therefore being justified by what? Faith. And who gave us the faith? God did. Just think on that for a second. We have peace with God because He drew us. The Spirit convicted. He gave us the faith. And His Son justified us by what He did on the cross. You see how it's all about Him? That's why there are so many religions out there that get it all wrong. Religion says you have to do. Bible Christianity says it's been done. Let's go on to the next point. Letter G, the Holy Spirit's the one who washes and regenerates. We don't do that. The Holy Spirit does. The Bible tells us in Titus 3, verse number 5, it says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. And then when it all comes together, God is the one, letter H, that promises to glorify us. Is it letter H? There's no H on there for you? But God promises to glorify. It should have been there. And you can look at um, Romans 8.30, the verse we already read, and Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. And every aspect of salvation is is the work of God. Now you say, since that's God's part, let's look at next, man's part in salvation. What is man's part in salvation? Well, if you're good enough, oh, if you get baptized, if you do enough Hail Marys and these things, you know, no, 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 no. What is man's part? What does man need to do? God's done everything. Am I wrong on that statement? God's done everything? So what does man do? Man does one of two things. Are you ready? Letter A. Man can either receive him or letter B, reject him. So that's all I do? Yep. Could it be any more simpler than that? Yeah, there's so many stupid, I mean, 
ignorant people in this world when it comes to that. You either receive him or reject him. That's it. Because Christ did everything else. That's all it comes down to. God did everything. All you got to do is accept it or reject him. Those that accept him have eternal life. Those that reject him, the wrath of God abides on them. And there comes a point where you reject long enough, he will give you over to a reprobate mind. There's a lot more I could say there. But we're going to just continue on here because we're running out of time tonight. Number two, Roman numeral number two, the security of salvation. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I'm just going to talk just for a minute through this. And there's so much more that I could go on to. What is some of the evidences of salvation? One of the evidences of salvation is the fact that you bear fruit. That's one way. Another way is that the Spirit of God speaks with our spirit, and we know we're His children. Another evidence of salvation is when God punishes you. Because I don't go around punishing other people's kids, unless they're in school and I give them stuff like that. And then I've got permission to do it. No, I take care of my own kids. So if God disciplines you, it's a proof that you're one of His children. And He gave us these things so we can know that we have eternal life. We talk about security. We're going to tie this all together and end here in a minute. How do we know that we are saved forever? Well, let me just go back to what I said. Did you have to be good enough to get saved in the first place? No, because there's none good. Was there any type of work you had to do to get saved? Nope. Because God is the one who foreknew. He's the one who predestinated. He's the one who calls. He's the one who justifies. And he's the one who glorifies. So with that being said, he did all of it. That's why at the end of the book it says that I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because what it comes down to is, and as we close here with the security of salvation, we see, first of all, letter A, that we are protected by the power of God. That's quite powerful right there. He spoke this world into existence. He raised Jesus from the dead. Scripture tells us, 1 Peter 1, verse 3 through 5, and 1 Peter, those first first Peter 1, that whole chapter, such a good chapter. You should go home and read it tonight. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Your reservations have been made, and no one's going to cancel it. You know why? Because we are kept by the good things that we do. We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You say, How, why am I secure in my salvation? How can I not lose my salvation? Because I am kept. It is guarded by the power of God. Nothing can change that. That's why I'm eternally secure tonight. Letter B. Not only that, but God always finishes what he begins. 
He always finishes what he begins. Bible tells us in Philippians 1, verse number 6, being confident, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work... Were you good before salvation? No. But he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God finishes what he starts. Letter C. You can know that you have eternal life. What the Bible says, Satan wants you to guess. Satan wants you to wonder about those things. 1 John 5, verse number 13, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know, not question, not guess, not wonder, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So as we talk about tonight the fact of the security of our salvation, you've got to understand the fact that it's protected by God's power. God will finish what he begins. You'll, he, you will know that you have eternal life, and then I already used it in the past, but nothing can separate you from God. That's what the Bible says. Now, I know there, there are those out there, you commit suicide, it's un, unforgivable. Nothing. I'm not telling anyone to commit suicide, but nothing. Nothing can separate you. There's one sin that's unforgivable. Blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. And that ultimately, what happens? The Spirit of God convicts the sinner of his need for a savior you reject that long enough you blaspheme the holy spirit the only way you're not getting to heaven is by rejecting christ that's how that ties together so as we close i want you to think about this tonight the last thought here and i didn't and it's down there at the bottom but your salvation isn't yours to lose you did nothing for it you didn't earn it you can't keep it you can't do nothing for your salvation. You either receive it or you reject it. But what does that mean? That means that God predestined you to be saved. God has called you and drawn you to himself. God has convicted you of your sin. God has given you the faith to believe. He's granted you repentance. He's justified you. He's sealed you with the Holy Spirit. He made you a new creation. And he promises to glorify you someday. You see, it's all God Nothing about us. So you can't lose something that's not yours. You did nothing for it. He did it all. That's what changes Christianity from every other religion or works-based thing out there. Christ did it all. That's why we sing the song, Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. You did nothing except receive him or reject him. As you're dead, God did everything. That's how awesome he is. Salvation is not about anything you and I have done. It's all about him. That's why sometimes a lot of people say, well, I don't understand how a wicked person could get saved on their deathbed and still go to heaven. Do I need to go back in it? It's not your salvation to decide how it's done. He did it. He can save anyone. That's his choice. It's his salvation. But how do I know if they... That's up to him to figure out if they meant it or not. Not me. He's the one who grants repentance, right? It all comes down to him. He did it all. You receive him or you reject him. That's the only part you play. And once you receive him, he gave you the power to become the sons of God. And you are kept 
and you are sealed forever, and there's nothing you can do to lose it. Nobody can pluck you out of his hand once you're in because he did all the work to get you in. You just had to accept it. If I were to walk into the room tonight and say, if I had a pile, one million dollars sitting right here, and I said, all you got to do is just come get it, and it's yours. Or you can just leave with nothing. There might be someone in here that'd be like, well, pastor's got something, some trick up his sleeve. He's trying to trick me, and you might walk out the door. You walk out the door, you don't get the money. Salvation is much better than any money you could ever get. It's better than filling up your gas tank. There's so much better. Yet, I don't understand why so many people reject it. I hear many adults when I witness to them, I just don't get the fact that I don't have to do anything. I gotta have to do something. Remember how Jesus said we're supposed to come to him with a childlike faith? The children can believe things. You know, they play weird little games with themselves and think that they're, you know, I hear some of these kids at school, they play family and how that all works and all that, I don't even know, but or they play different games or Matthew's throwing a ball against the wall thinking he's playing on the, on the angels team throwing strikes and he's throwing a ball against the wall. Kids just believe things. You need a childlike faith. At the end of the day, Jesus did everything. God did everything for you. You receive him or reject him. That's the only part we play. Father, we